Well, as Albert already announced, as we give our attention to the study of God's Word this morning, uh, I have been asked to do two, smes- uh, two special messages, two special messages uh, on the subject of evangelism this week and next. Today we want to talk about biblical motivations for evangelism, and next week we want to talk about how to pray evangelistically. Uh, I know that these are subjects that we have covered many times in the past, um, but I think it's still very relevant for us to revisit it. If you've been here for very much time at all, you know that we do an evangelism campaign uh, in the fall and in the spring, and we try to shake it up a little bit as far as differences in specific details as to what we encourage you to do and ways we give you to participate in the event, etc. But it might, it might interest you to know, am I not able to be heard? No, we're good. Okay, so it might interest you to know that uh, we don't really do this just for the sake of the campaign. In fact, our main focus in doing an evangelism campaign every spring and every fall is not because those are the two times a year that we are trying to do evangelism. We do two corporate exercises a year in order to help to both equip all of us and to remind each of us, as uh, Albert pointed out at the beginning, that this is something we should be doing all the time. And that's why sometimes we go knocking on doors, sometimes we go to a park, sometimes we go to the laundromat, sometimes uh, we have you invite friends and neighbors, co-workers, etc. And I would uh, uh, just say two things. Number one, with regard to Dan, wherever he went. So just so we're clear, no, Albert did not use my time. He used your time with his long announcement today. We're, but No, I'm just kidding. But Well, not totally. But anyways, and then secondly... Um, Uh, I would just add to what Albert said, which is, I'd encourage you to start looking around and the people that maybe not are next door to you or down the street from you, but uh, your family, your extended family, your co-workers, your friends, the people you meet at, I don't know, uh, the gym, the bridge club, or uh, in your underwater BV stacking uh, hobby group or whatever it is, there's got to be somebody that does not know Christ, that you encounter and that you know and that you haven't shared the gospel with or haven't broached the subject of their eternal standing before God in a long time. And that's the person that you just thought of right now that I want you to have in your heart and your mind as we go through a study of a string of texts this morning and talk about reasons why we ought to be motivated to evangelism. You know, we've covered these topics in the past, but the one that we're addressing today is still very very relevant because, first of all, evangelism is scary and it could cost you something. I mean, it really is. Um, Sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, uh, from the time that I first came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, did not cost me a promotion at work, but it did change the way that people looked at me and related with me at work. Um, Now, I'm paid to be good. In those days, I was good for nothing. And uh, most of you today are in the good for nothing category, right? That makes you, number one, a better witness for Christ in many ways because you're not 
the people that get discounted by most of the world as being Christians and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ because you're paid to do it. You're doing it because, not, not that I'm not doing it because I really want to. If you didn't pay me, I'd still be here. Um, but if, uh, if, you, if you want from a world's perspective, okay, at the end of the day, your testimony, you may think that if I could just get them to sit down and talk to Pastor Brian, then, then maybe they'd get saved. You know something? Your testimony to them, to the people that you know, to the people that you interact with and relate to every day, every week, every month, every year, uh, you have a, be- a more credible testimony with them than I do. I'm somebody they don't know. You're somebody they do know. However, if you start to share the gospel with somebody at work, somebody that works across the hall from you, somebody that you encounter in a regular basis that cleans your teeth, that uh, does your eye exams, that uh, comes over and does your lawn or whatever, you start to share the gospel with them. And guess what? Yeah, they're going to look at your life different. And yes, it is scary to be more accountable. It is. In a sense, I could just say, welcome to my life. Uh, and, and, And frankly, whether you realize it or not, as a Christian, that is your life. That absolutely is your life. And... And so one of the reasons we need to be motivated for this is because it is scary and it could cost you something to stand and point people to Christ and stand up and be publicly identified with Jesus Christ, not just on the day of your baptism, not just on Sunday when you're together with a bunch of us that are all in that same boat together, but as you live your life through your daily uh, encounters, living for Christ and being recognized as one of his. Okay, yeah, that can be scary, but that's the call of Christ, is it not? Is that not what Jesus called uh, the disciples to from the very beginning? And I don't just mean Peter, James, John, and the rest. I mean everybody. Secondly, uh, it's good to be purposefully motivated to evangelism and be reminded of this because it does require some degree of preparation. One of the reasons why I think some people are afraid to start to broach the subject is because they know they don't know their Bible well enough to answer all the questions and objections. Can I just share with you a little secret? You know why it seems like I know most of the answers to the questions and even can, I mean, uh, Michael tell you this in class. I go, that's a good question. You know what a better question would be? And the question you ought to be asking is, you want to know why I know that? Uh, because for the last 30 plus years, that's what I've been doing. That's what I've been doing. And it didn't start when I went to seminary and it didn't start when I became a pastor. It didn't start when I started as a professor. It didn't start in the last week, last month, last year. It started when I first came to Saving Faith in Jesus Christ. I just started reading my Bible. I started purposely trying to learn my Bible and trying to obey it principle by principle, precept upon precept, book by book, chapter by chapter. And you know something? And when you start sharing the gospel with somebody, if you can just be a humble servant of Christ and I sit down, maybe I choose Dave. I sit down and I share the gospel with Dave and Dave goes, what about this? Instead of going, oh, no, oh, no, I don't know Dave's answer to Dave's question. I just go, Dave, that's a really good question. Uh, I know the Bible has an answer to it. I'm going to find that answer out. And how about I get back to you? Or Reuben asks another question. And it seems like a silly question, but all of a sudden I start thinking about it. I go, oh, I don't know about that. And it starts to shake my faith. Ever felt uncomfortable when 
an unbeliever asks a question that seems to undermine a fundamental faith, and you're like, why did I even get into this conversation? I'm no good at this evangelism thing. I'm not going to do it. Can I make you a, I'll make you a promise. When your faith gets shaken like that, when you actually study the scripture, you know what you'll find? You'll find that God does have an answer. There is an answer. It's right there in the scriptures. You can work through it and find it. And all of a sudden, after you had your faith challenged in a way, your faith will be stronger as a result of having been challenged there and found the answer. I know I've done it many, 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 many times. Now, at this point, when you ask me something out in left field and I go, I had a student ask me this week. He's also pastoring. He says, hey, Dr. Murphy, can I have a minute? Sure. And so we sit down. He says, this is what this is somebody in the church. They're asking about this. And it's some really far off thing in eschatology. He says, how would you answer that? I said, well, first of all, how how are you going to answer it? And he says, well, this is what I'm thinking so far. But I said, well, that's pretty good. Uh, I'll tell you this. No, I've never heard that question before, but I do know fundamentally the answer is always going to be going through this way. And this is what the scripture does say. And then as far as yours goes, go do your homework and come back and tell me what you learned. And I'll, and I'll go chase it afterwards. You know something? You can't be shaken. Does the, do you believe the Bible is true? Do you believe that it has everything pertaining to life and godliness in it like it claims? Okay, then, then they live and act like it. And don't be afraid to share the gospel with people who might ask questions that you don't know the answer to. And don't use your, your unfaithfulness to really spend time in Scripture and pursue understanding of Scripture. You want to know one of the things that have been a free motivation for me for years and years and years to keep studying the Scripture is the fact that I committed myself to show up every Sunday and preach and teach to you. That's a free motivation. I mean, it is. Sunday comes about the same time every week. Have you noticed? Now, I get a break in the fall of an hour once. Okay? And then I lose that hour I gained in the spring. Okay? Other than that, Sunday comes about the same. You want to know what my Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays are full of? The, The sense of the impending coming of Sunday. So I just work to be ready for it. And when I study the scripture, I know there's an answer. I know there's a point. I believe it's true. And I have never found God lacking answers to any question or objection anybody has ever raised. Never. And if you have trouble finding an answer because you've sat down with somebody and tried to share the gospel with them, well, listen, that's what the elders are for. That's what we're here for. Now, I, I can promise you, Chuck's, Chuck's going to be snarky with you. Dan will probably graciously give you the answer. Okay, Uh, I'll give you homework and then I'll grade it after you bring it back in and say you got it right or wrong. Uh, And Albert is probably a coin toss, but you you, just ask and we'll help you. And then you go back to your friend and you share the gospel. You go back and give the answer. Okay, that's 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 what we're that's what we're talking about. You don't have to have the gift of evangelism. You're not in the first century. Okay, there is no functional gift of evangelism after the first century that was unique to the time frame of the apostles. You want to know why there were miraculous gifts given like prophecy and uh, languages or speaking in tongues and even the the sign gifts like healing uh, and administration and teaching. You want to know why those were miraculously bestowed in the first century? 
because they started a church from nothing. And in order to have elders in the first month of a church's existence, God had to dispense some spiritual gifts that included wisdom and insight and direct revelation from God, etc. Plus, you didn't have the New Testament written yet. So that's unique to that occasion. And you had some people who were gifted with the gift of evangelism. But you know what Paul says to Timothy? He doesn't tell him to exercise the gift. He says, do the work of an evangelist. And that's what we're all called to do. And finally, I think it's important to remember that when you, when you point people to Jesus Christ, when you share the gospel of Christ, the good news of Christ and who He is and what He did for us, you understand that's a spiritual service to God. It's, it's an expression of worship. It really is. That's all it is. It's a, a glorious and wonderful way to just be obedient to the command of God to share Christ with lost people around you, and you're glorifying God just by broaching the subject. You don't have to beat anybody up with your Bible. You don't have to condemn people. That's not your job. That's not my job. When I go to share the good news with somebody, I'm inviting them to be reconciled to God. I'm not inviting them to repent before me because I'm some kind of an authority. Does that make sense? Sometimes I think we have just a complete wrong attitude about what evangelism even is. What I'd like to do today, and I know for the most part, we have a pretty good understanding of this, and we've been doing this for over 20 years, these kinds of campaigns. And what I hoped... What I hope to accomplish today is to answer the question why we should be motivated to participate in evangelism together this month and then as a pattern in life uh, for the rest of our days until, uh, until Christ returns for us or He calls us home. What I want to do is I want to share with you three biblical motivations for evangelism that I really help move you to focus your attention over the course of this next month One or two or three people, the names, the faces, the people that you thought of when I first started this this message this morning. I'd like you to fix your attention on them. I'd like you to write that name down in your Bible. Write that name down on the sermon notes at the top of the page. Okay, Carve that name into your heart for this month and start praying for them and start praying that you will be faithful to share the gospel with them and start looking for an opportunity to do just that. And if you want to know specifically how to pray for that, then come back next week and we'll go through that. But for for today, I want to give you three biblical motivations for evangelism. And there's a bunch of passages we're going to go through. So put on your crash helmets, strap yourselves in. Uh, We're going to hit about Mach 11, I think. Uh, So uh, that's going to bust some blood vessels in some of us, I think. But uh, it ought to be a lot of fun. We're We're going to take a look at the authority of Christ, the certainty of judgment, and the sufficiency of the cross as biblical motivations for evangelism. I'll give them to you again. You ready? This is just the... Uh, the skeleton upon which we're going to hang our thoughts. Three biblical motivations for evangelism. Number one is the authority of Christ. The authority of Christ. I think that should be the chief and primary motivation for doing evangelism. The second is the certainty of judgment. And by this, I don't mean judgment of us. I mean judgment of the world. And the third is the sufficiency of the cross. I think if you consider for a moment 
<laughs> Just how glorious and wonderful what Christ did for us at the cross is. I, I, I can't imagine you wouldn't want to share that. So filled with thanksgiving for the salvation that God has given to you, the love that God has shown to you, I can't imagine you wouldn't want to share that with somebody else. How many of us have ever gotten a great deal on something? Okay? And what immediately do you want to do? Tell all your friends about it. Right? I don't care if it's a car. I don't care if it's a book. I don't care if it's a video game. I don't care if it's tickets to something. I, I, don't, I don't care what it is. Right? I, I don't care if it's, it's squishy-swashy tape stuff. Okay? As soon as you find something really cool, don't you want to tell everybody about it? Right? Hey, this is on sale. You got the, 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 the Lobby Hobbies and, and the, uh, what's the other one? The, uh, the Lin, well, I don't know, Michaels and whoever, yeah, whatever, okay? All those places where most of my salary goes, okay? That, that, listen, you find out something's on sale and you want to tell everybody about it. Something's really good news, you want to share it, right? Is there any better news than that Christ came and paid for our sins? Okay, that's... That, that attitude that you felt right there, that's the attitude I want you walking out of here with this morning. All right, let's take a look at these in order. Ready? We'll start with the authority of Christ. This is not going to surprise anybody, but you want to know where the first motivation for evangelism really comes from? Believe it or not, it comes from the Great Commission. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew 28. We have been through this so many times probably even without trying to, you have memorized it now in three different versions, probably including my own translation from the Greek, which you've never seen. Matthew chapter 28. Jesus has gone to the cross. He has died and paid for our sins. As he, as he yielded up His Spirit, He said, it is finished. It's accomplished. And we're told in the gospel that the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. Well, why is it that God, this is taken, the, the crucifixion happens outside the city, right? And Jesus yields up his life, he dies. And as soon as that happens inside the city, up on the temple mount, in the holiest of holy places there in the temple, this huge 50-foot curtain, two inches thick, rips from top to bottom. Why? Why would God do that? Because it demonstrates when Christ died once and for all, the way to God is open forever through Jesus Christ and what He just did for us at the cross. Remember, the disciples were really easy to convince that Jesus had risen from the dead. Resurrection Sunday morning rolls around. The women go up to the tomb and they get there and they've got the burial spices and etc. the ointments and whatnot. They want to show respect to Christ in his, uh, in his burial because they weren't able to do that uh, because of the Sabbath and the festival and all those kinds of things. So it's the first day of the week. It's Sunday. They're going to go and they're going to honor him. And they're all talking amongst themselves about uh, who, how, how are we going to get in because the, the, the stone has been rolled in front of the tomb and, and none of us can lift it. So what are we going to do? And they get there and lo and behold, what do they find? There's an angel that says, Says, ladies, what are you doing here? Jesus isn't here. He's risen. You shouldn't be here. And uh, just like he told you, 
He, it's the third day and he has risen from the dead. Go tell the apostles. Go tell his disciples. And what do they do? They run to Peter and John and the rest of those guys and they walk in and they go, guys, we went to the tomb and Jesus isn't there. And Peter goes, well, duh, don't you women ever listen to us? He's been telling us that for the last 10 weeks. No, not so much. Not so much. They didn't even believe him. They saw an angel and they didn't believe him. Jesus told them repeatedly and they didn't believe him. You get to the end of Luke 24. Jesus shows up at the end of the day on Resurrection Sunday in their midst, and they think they're seeing a ghost. He has to open their mind to the truth. They've seen him. They put their fingers in the nail print. They put their hand in his side. And then he opens their mind to be able to see the truth. And he says, now this is what I've been telling you from the beginning. As I walk through the whole Old Testament, this has always been what God's plan has been. And you are my witnesses and you are to go into all the world and preach that message. This is always what God has intended. We're in Matthew 28. After that day, he sends all the disciples up to Galilee. And he goes and he meets them in Galilee where he spent the most of his ministry. And by the way, we're told here in verse 16, the 11 disciples, because Judas has hanged himself, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. This may have been where he did this, gave the Sermon on the Mount. This may also have been where he did the feeding of the 5,000, one, 5, one of those places. Or another one we don't know, but it's up in Galilee where he spent most of his ministry, and it's probably the location that he spent, uh, I think, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, where he was trying to spend most of his time instructing them. So he sends him back up there, and so then he meets him there. And when they see him, they worship him. Some are still doubtful. Notice that some of them are still trying to put the pieces together. And Jesus comes up and speaks to them, and he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Having accomplished the work of redemption on the cross, I have been given all authority, not just in heaven, but also on the earth. And this is the command I give to you. This is how I am exercising that authority. First and foremost, what does Jesus want from his disciples? He wants his disciples to go therefore notice the therefore therefore since i have all authority everywhere this is my commandment go make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit and teaching them to observe all that i have commanded you and lo i'm with you always even to the end of the age if you looked at this in the Greek, you would notice there is one imperative, one command, and that's make disciples. The three words go, baptize, and teach define what goes into making the disciples. You could even translate it this way. Therefore, make disciples, having gone, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and continually teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the ministry. That's the commission. That is what the, the apostles were assigned as their task. That's the purpose of the church. And by the way, you can see this is absolutely applicable all the way down to us because he says, lo, I am with you even to the end of what? Your lives? Your season? Your ministry? No, to the end of the age. This is the mission of the church all the way up to today. Now, in this household of faith, 
I think we focus on baptism faithfully. I think we push people and encourage people that the first act of obedience that Christ requires is baptism and join the church, be publicly identified with him. I think we do a faithful job on that. If you've been here more than about two or three months, you have probably, uh, actually, you've probably been invited over to Chuck and Gina's house, and then Chuck has cornered you and said, so what's taking so long? You should be actively involved in ministry by now, right? Oh, what's the holdup? Uh, and, uh, and, and if you've met Albert, uh, he's probably said, you know, you got about two weeks before Pastor Brian says it's time to hit the road, Right? Uh, So I think we're pretty faithful on focusing on the importance of being publicly identified with Christ and being an active, vibrant member of a church. If you think this is a biblical church, you ought to join the church. You ought to be a part of the body because this is this is the Great Commission being publicly identified with Christ and as a member of his body. I'll show you in Acts 2 that that's exactly the way this was put into practice right from the beginning. That's why we do that. I think we do a faithful job there. I think you'll also find that we do a faithful job in uh, most contexts, whether we're talking about Wednesday night, uh, where the guys have uh, very wisely chosen to take on the whole of systematic theology in an everyday discussion, uh, even though they haven't had the classes yet. Um, I think that uh, you'll find that in Sunday school we approach uh, uh, significant issues and we seek for biblical answers. I think as a regular uh, exercise in the pulpit ministry, I think that you can see that we're seeking to actually teach the Bible, the content of the Bible in context, and uh, we're consistently, to the best of uh, our ability, conforming what we believe, what we practice, not just corporately, but individually in our households, to be in conformity with what we're learning the Bible teaches. I think we do all that well. You know what I don't see us doing as well as a church? The going. The looking around the people around us every day that we encounter every day that don't know Christ, that we've never spoken to Christ about, and pointing them to Christ, broaching the subject. We just maintain a degree of arm's distance. I think we have a negative view of the state of our nation. That's not unjustified at this point. But frankly, a biblical view of our nation is to have a negative view of the moral decline of our nation and at the same time recognize that there has never been more fertile ground for evangelism and counseling and a biblical witness in this nation, especially in Southern California, than there is right now. There is more open antagonism to Christ in Southern California today than the first day I set foot in this state. People talk about leaving to go someplace where it's the America that I grew up in. You know what? I'm happy here because it's very obvious I'm needed here. Does that make sense? You know, we went down to, where did we go yesterday? Last San Luis Obispo or someplace like that? I don't remember. Somewhere down by the coast. You know, it's really pretty there. It really is. And Kath goes, oh, look at those houses and we could see the beach and all that other stuff and we could retire here and everything else. And you know what? I said, or, or we could wait until 
until our retirement home has streets of transparent gold. And we could be where God put us and spend the rest of our life to the best of our ability pouring into this household of faith and pouring into the ministry here where it's needed. See, that, that's, folks, that's got to be your focus in your Christian life. This world is not my home. I'm not home. I'm a short guy from Ohio, and Ohio isn't home. I spent the last 20-some, 25, however many years, okay? I don't math anymore. I'm too old. But uh, I spent the last long time here in Southern California. And this is not my home. This is where, Lord willing, I'm going to die. Maybe right here in this pulpit. I say amen, and I die when I get to my seat. That'd be great. That'd be great. Or I say, uh, let's pray and Christ returns. That'd be great. That'd be great. And in the meantime, I just want to be faithful. I want to be faithful because this is what Christ has called us to. You know, there are a lot of amenities. There are a lot of good things about the world in which we live and especially the American context in which we live. We have so many privileges, so many blessings, so many gadgets, so many hobbies, so many cool things. It's really easy to get distracted. Do you know the one thing that really matters? You are not here for all of that. And neither am I. Neither am I. Retiring from a secular occupation should not take you into a mindset where, oh, good, now I I, I spent all the first part of my life uh, doing what I needed to do to provide for my family and satisfy my employer, and now the rest of the life, my life I get to live for me. Well, you can do that if you're a normal American, but if you're a Christian, you gave your life to Christ. And that does not, that does not change when you retire. All that changes is the amount of time and availability you have to be able to live for Christ. You want to talk about a motivation for evangelism? I'd say it starts right here, recognizing that this is, this is the, you know, this is not one of the ten suggestions. You know, those, those little good ideas, be a good idea if you didn't murder, be a good idea if you didn't steal, be a good idea if you didn't covet. This is, this is not, it'd be a good idea if you evangelized. Okay, in the same way the Ten Commandments are commandments of God, so too this is a commandment from Christ Himself. And He sets the tone of it when He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and therefore, here's my charge, make disciples. And what goes into making disciples? It's not just the, the uh, teaching others to observe. It's not just the, that first time when you, when you publicly identify yourself with Christ and with one of His local assemblies. It's also going and sharing Christ, pointing those around you to Christ, uh, because that's, that's involved in the disciple-making process. That's where it all begins. You want to see what it looks like? Take your Bibles and jump to Acts 2, another passage we're very familiar with. Acts chapter 2, it's the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down and there's a miraculous sign. The apostles are filled with the Spirit and immediately, even though even they're, they're, they're from Galilee and they speak with a Galilean accent. Okay? The best I can do is, is compare it in America to like a southern drawl. Okay? So they talking in a southern drawl. 
But they're actually, they're talking in a Galilean drawl. But they're, pro, they're, they're praising God in other tongues, in other languages. In Coptic and Latin and Aramaic and uh, Ethiopian and etc. They're, they're praising God in other languages. You still hear their, their Galilean drawl or twang, right? But they're speaking and praising God in a way they can be understood as praising God. And all the people there that are there for the, Pen- the day of Pentecost, 40 days after the Passover when Christ was offered up and crucified, they're hearing this as they're going into the temple for the celebration on Pentecost. And they're going, what is going on? These guys have a Galilean draw. They, um, they say in... Uh, uh, verse 7, they were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not, aren't all these uh, who are speaking Galileans? How is it? How would they recognize their Galileans? We're in Jerusalem. We're in Judea. How would they recognize? Because they got that Galilean drawl. But we're hearing them. How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, all over the place, Egypt, the whole bit, right? Cretans and Arabs, then their own tongues, their own languages, speaking the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does all this mean? But notice how the miracle has facilitated people asking a question. What does this mean? And notice... The suggestion is some were mocking, others saying they must be drunk. They're full of sweet wine. Peter takes his stand with the eleven right there on the steps of the temple, raises his voice and declares to them, men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, give heed to my words. These men are not drunk, as some of you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. It hasn't been time to get drunk yet. Doesn't even make sense. This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And he quotes from the Old Testament in Joel 2 to prove it. He says in verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which he performed through you or through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. We've been going through Mark's gospel this year, right? How many miracles did Jesus do? A handful, right? A handful every couple of minutes. He did countless miracles of all kinds. They saw all of that. Notice how Peter begins by saying, listen to this. Jesus the Nazarene, a man that you saw do miracles that God did through him, attesting to who he is. Just as you yourselves know, this man was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Many of these people, no doubt, were the ones that said 40 days ago, we want Barabbas. He's addressing that very crowd. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it's impossible for him to be held in his power. Indeed, David says of him, and he quotes from Psalm 16, to show that this is exactly what was going to happen. The, the, uh, God will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo, undergo de- decay. The Holy One of God will not rot in the tomb. 
Verse 29, David says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you that David, or that regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. You can find David's bones in his tomb. You will not find Jesus' bones in his tomb. Because he was a prophet, that is David, and knew that God had sworn of him with an oath to seat one of his descendants, the Davidic covenant, to seat a descendant of David on David's throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. David was writing about Christ's resurrection when he wrote this text, Psalm 16, that he just quoted. This Jesus God raised up again, verse 32, to which we are all witnesses. And again, they were hard to convince of the resurrection, right? Well, we're witnesses that he had that God did raise him up. Jesus, uh, this Jesus, God raised up again to which we're all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he was poured forth this which you both see and hear. That is the speaking in tongues, speaking in languages, which you understand. For it was not David who was ascended into heaven, but he himself says in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is right now seated at the right hand of the Father, having risen from the dead, just like God said. Notice how many quotes from the Old Testament he uses with this audience that would have been familiar with the Old Testament. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He preached the gospel. He preached the good news. Well, how's that good news? He just told them that they murdered their Messiah. Well, verse 37, notice their reaction. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, then what do we do? And he said, repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Slip down to verse 40. It says, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Be rescued, be saved, be delivered. Notice he is pleading for them to be reconciled to God. Verse 41, so then those who received his word were baptized and that they were, were added about what? 3,000 souls. They, add, they were immediately added to the church. Verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everybody kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. All of those who had believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their property and possessions and sharing them with everybody as anybody might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in a temple, breaking bread from house to house, taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having having favor with all the people and the Lord kept adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's the way you see the Great Commission being fulfilled from the very beginning. That's what we're still supposed to be doing. Minus the miracles because they're not needed anymore. We have the complete revelation of God right here. Notice in verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship teaching them to observe whatsoever I've commanded you, continuing to teach, continuing to learn, and then together worshiping God corporately, like what we've been doing today, giving attention to his word, being instructed from his word, and then living out in our lives in accordance with the instructions that were being given. And what is the chief number one instruction that God has given to us in his word as disciples of Jesus Christ? It is not to be God's kind of husband. It is not to be God's kind of wife. It is not to be God's kind of uh, son, daughter, father, mother, 
employer, employee, it is to be making disciples. We all exist. You, you know, some of you guys can sing really well, but not as well as you will in heaven. Some of you guys can play really well, but not as well as you'll be able to play in heaven. Do you know the one thing we won't be able to do in heaven that we can do here? We can share the good news with people who are lost. There won't be any lost people in heaven. This is your one chance to live for God in a sin-cursed and fallen world. This is your one opportunity in your life to point somebody who's lost to Jesus Christ. This is it. That's what we're here for. That's why He's left us here. You know, it's amazing when you, when you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you want to turn there with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I still remember the first time I studied through this and preached through this text here 20 some years ago. And finding out that the church in Thessalonica was about a year old. And Paul calls them a model church that all churches can follow their example. And I was looking around and we were 67, 70 years old at the time as a church. And I went, you know what? If they can be a model church in less than a year, there's no reason why we can't be a model church today. Let's just learn from them and follow their example. How would that be? And so that's what we started to do. Paul says in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. And our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you, knowing that you're elect. How do I know you really are God's people? How do I know you really are Christians? Verse 5, because our gospel, our proclamation of the good news, did not come to you in word only. We didn't just talk, but it was all obvious also that it came in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you yourselves know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. We lived what we preached, and we preached what we live and what we believe and what God says. And you know what we saw? You became imitators of us and of the Lord. You received the word, the preaching and teaching we gave you, in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so much so, verse 7, that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia, to the whole region. Even from the time you came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, because it cost you so much to identify with Christ, because you were persecuted from the very beginning, and yet you still stayed true to Christ, and you kept proclaiming the good news no matter what it cost you. Yeah, it's very obvious you guys really are Christians. You want to know why assurance of salvation can be a fleeting thing for a believer? Disobedience. Disobedience. Whether it's in your own sanctification, something you're doing that you shouldn't be doing, or whether it's in unfaithfulness, not doing something you know you ought to do. And sharing Christ, pointing, Christ, uh, pointing to Christ with the people around you is something that you, it's not that you ought to do it, I think we've just shown that you're commanded to do it. Amen? You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, and that resulted in you becoming an example to all believers. Why? Verse 8, because the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, not just in Macedonia and Achaia, but also every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so we don't have to say anything. 
When was the last time you heard a preacher say that? Wow, you shared the gospel with this person, and I sat down with them. They tell me about your testimony. I don't have to say a word. They've already heard it all. I just ask, well, okay, are you ready to respond <laughs> in repentance and faith and get baptized now then? That's, listen, that is the model. That's what every church is to be characterized by. That's what all the believers in every church uh, are to be characterized by. An active involvement in not just learning the Scriptures in your own individual Christian life and personal relationships in your household, not just controlling your own tongue, not just being a, a man or a woman of integrity at home or on the job or in church or in community all day, but also pointing others to Christ. This is not for the paid professionals. In fact, if you, if you really want to know what paid professionals, what, the, what pastors and teachers are for, read Ephesians 4. God gave pastors and teachers to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, not to do the work of the ministry. You want to know why I don't go to everything when the doors are open? I don't want to get in the way. I don't want it to be about me. And, and it's not just the interns that need to grow up and sink or swim on their own and then come into the office and say, Pastor Brian, I think I might have botched it and bit off more than we can chew. Well, okay. Buy a life jacket and get back in the water, brother. Let's go. And I'll help you through it moving forward. I just had that conversation this week. Listen, it, this, I am not and have never been the ministry here. We are. And this command to go and make disciples is a command God gave to all of us. To the best of my ability as an individual and as a pastor in this church, I'm, I'm doing my part. What I'm, what I'm encouraging you to do is yours. Secondly, the certainty of judgment. I think this is a little bit obvious, but we're going to go down this road anyways. The certainty of judgment really needs to be a motivation within every one of our hearts. When, when, um, when in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 44, Jesus says, uh, you have heard that it's, well actually it's not verse 44. Uh, anyways, and at the end of Matthew 5, Jesus says, you have heard that it's been said, love your enemies, or, or excuse me, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. I think verse 44 says, but I say to you, love your enemies and be continually praying for those who are persecuting you because you need to be children of your Father who is in heaven. He causes His Son to shine upon the, the good and the evil, Right? He causes rain to fall on the fields of the righteous and the unrighteous. He shows grace and kindness and favor and gives blessings to all the people that live in His world, even those who thumb their nose at Him. Well, you know something? When you look at the people around you that have a political bent different than yours, have a moral agenda and moral value system and, and uh, ungodly behaviors, do you look at, upon them as those who deserve to be eternally condemned? 
Or do you look upon them and say, you know what? I'm as worthy of eternal condemnation as they are. And God saved me. And you know something? If somebody hadn't taken the time to point me to Christ, that still would be where I am. You say, well, now wait a minute. God is sovereign in salvation. You're absolutely right. You are absolutely right. And do you know what God in His sovereignty decreed as the means by which uh, people get saved? I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans 10. There's probably no letter in the New Testament that more clearly articulates the sovereignty of God. And no section of this letter better uh, develops and presents this argument than Romans 9 through 11. And evangelism is clearly articulated and defined and explained within the context of divine sovereignty in Romans chapter 10. In Romans 10, uh, we'll pick up in verse 8. What does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are preaching. Okay? What, is, what does the Bible say? What does the word say? What is the message about how people get saved? Well, this is bottom line. At the end of the day, this is what it boils down to. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what happens? You get saved. Why? Well, because with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. You say, well, is that two acts? No, those are two acts that are directly linked. When, when you believe in your heart the message of the gospel, and you recognize truly Jesus for who He is, and you confess Him as Lord. Well, what's that mean? Well, what does it mean to identify somebody as your Lord? It means He owns you. It means He's sovereign over you. It means He has absolute authority over you. I, I think as Americans, we, we have kind of a natural inclination against that. Well, in all fairness, as descendants of Adam, which we all are, we have a, a, a natural uh, hesitancy to submit, especially to God. But this is the, this is, salvation is founded on this very principle. You've got to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And that's what's required for you to get saved. To be reconciled with God is to recognize you are a sinner and Jesus is the Lord who came and died and rose again. That's the good news. Jesus came. God came in the person of Jesus Christ. He laid His life down for us. He died and paid the penalty for our sins. And if you confess Him as Lord and believe the truth of the gospel and the implication in there is and submit to that truth and live for him you'll be saved because with a heart a person believes resulting in righteousness being reconciled put in a right relationship with God and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation deliverance uh, from divine wrath why because the scripture says whoever believes in him will not be disappointed there's no distinction jew gentile all uh, the same lord is lord of all abounding in riches for all who call upon him for whoever will call upon the name of the lord will be saved this is this is how you get saved whether you're a jew or a gentile i don't care male female old young this is how people get saved now we could go through that a little bit more but i want to focus on verse 14 now 
Here's the question that Paul asks. And yes, I understand that God has to do a work in a person's heart for them to believe. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, We know you're a man sent from God. Nobody does the stuff you do unless God is with him. And he says, Nicodemus, unless a man is what? Born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, how does a man get born again? I can't enter my mom's womb a second time, can I? What, what are you talking about? This is not an act that you can do, Nicodemus. And you ought to even know this as the teacher, the preeminent teacher of the Old Testament. It wasn't called that yet, but as the preeminent teacher of the scriptures, you ought to understand even from the Old Testament that you have to have a circumcised heart and only God can change your heart. You have to be born again. Yes, it's a spiritual act that God does and miraculously grants you repentance and faith. Absolutely. But you know what? God has built human means, human instrumentality into the equation of bringing his elect into a saving relationship with himself. You did not get saved by a vision from God. You did not have an angel appear in front of you and say, Steve, repent. Did you? I know an angel appeared before you and you married her, but that's, that's, a, different, that's a different event, right? Now, when you, when, you talk about, when you talk about how did God ordain the salvation of His people, Romans 10, verse 14, Paul says this, How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? Can you get saved without believing in Christ? No. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Well, can you believe in Jesus if you haven't heard of him? No. Uh, How will they hear without a preacher? If somebody doesn't share it, how are they ever going to hear? They're not. How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. You understand? When you go to share the gospel with somebody that's lost... They're headed for a Christless eternity. They are headed for the wrath of God that you deserve. And they deserve. Nahum, chapter 1. Nahum writes it this way. He says, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and He reserves wrath for His enemies. He is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Literally, the unpunished unpunished. And that's what we all are. Unpunished. Unless you're in Christ and then He's already punished all of your sins when He poured out His wrath on Christ. And if you're not in Christ, then Revelation 20 is for you. You will stand before Jesus Christ in full glory. He will open the books and you will answer to God for every sin that you have ever committed. The reason I will not face that judgment is not because there is any good thing in me and not because of any good thing I have done since God saved me. The reason I will not face that judgment is because when Christ died, he took the fullness of God's wrath due for me as he died there on the cross in my place. Now, when you look at the people around you, how do you view them? The world will be so much better when we don't have all those slip in your own hated group. What what, what group would you throw into that? 
all those dirty blanks. You know something? You should put your own name in there. You should put my name in there. Because the lake of fire together with the devil and his angels is exactly where I deserve to be. Even today. There is, there is no way to undo every sin I've ever committed. There is no way to undo one sin I've ever committed. No way. Have you ever figured out a way to undo? A, have you ever done something, said something? How many of you are married? Ever said something you wish you could just take it back? See, John won't even raise his hand right now. Okay? And Leah has that look. Okay? I'm just kidding. But you, you ever wish, you ever do something, wish you could have it back? Right? I mean, apart from the story, right, Chuck? I mean, there's some funny stories in some of the things you do. But, but when we do, did you ever wish that you just hadn't done that? Have you, have you ever tried to hit rewind in life? Ever thought about buying a DeLorean? Do you understand, even if you get in a DeLorean and went back in time, you can't undo it all? Frankly, we can't undo any of it. All that would happen is if you could go back in time and redo it, you would just do it wrong in a different way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There was no one righteous, not even one. Not even me. And so when you look around at the people that are lost around you, can, can you not... Can you not embrace the heartbeat of God and see that your heavenly father demonstrated his love toward you and that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you? Can you not look at these people who are lost around you, extended members of your family that, well, you know what, I, I just wish I didn't ever have, have to see them anymore. Can you, can you not in your heart feel the, the weight of, of divine wrath and the, the pending judgment? D does your heart not go out for them concerned about their eternal standing before God? Are you really so filled with that Batman justice streak that you want to just see them crushed? That's a, that's a very American mentality. That is not at all a Christian mentality. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know, I'll encourage you this afternoon. Turn in your Bibles this afternoon to John 3. Read verse 16 and then read down to verse 21. Because most people memorize verse 16 and ignore verses 17 to 21. You know what you'll find in verse 17? God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world. The world stood condemned already. God didn't have to do anything to judge us for our sins. We stand condemned. The reason He acted in redemptive history to send His Son is to provide the means by which we could be reconciled to Him. Is everybody going to answer for their sins? Well, every sin will be punished. Yes. Mine were all taken care of at the cross. And when, when I see lost people around me, I just cannot help but grieve for them. Even some people who have said really hateful things to me and about me and all. Yes. I would love to see them reconciled to Christ. Is that not your heart? 
Do you not recognize that you are in a no condemnation status before God? Romans 8 verses 1 to 4. That, that, that you are in a no condemnation status before God because of what Christ did for you. And they still are under the certainty of pending judgment and God's wrath. Does that not move you to compassion by itself to want to share the gospel with them? The last thing I'll point to is the sufficiency of the cross. In uh, 2 Corinthians 5, I want you to turn here with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Two places I'll go here. I could preach the whole book of Hebrews for you again, uh, but I think I would even get hungry before I finished. So let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll pick up in verse 18. He's been explaining the gospel. He's been explaining and justifying his, his ministry. The whole of 2 Corinthians is a defense of Paul's apostleship, uh, especially in answering some of the false charges and hateful accusations that have been leveled against him. He says in verse 18, all these things, including being a new creature in Christ, the old things are passed away, new things have come, the changes that have been wrought in me and in us because of uh, Christ's salvation, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You know what Paul is saying? I got a whole bunch of people that hate me and say hateful things about me. And, and you know, the one thing that, that drives me is a, is a continual re, uh, remembrance of the fact that God gave me eternal life. He gave me salvation and the ministry of reconciliation. When you share the gospel with somebody, that's what you're trying to do. Be an agent of reconciliation, not between somebody and yourself, not between two people, but between a sinner and and a holy God that they have offended even if they don't believe it, even if they don't understand it, even if they won't repent of it. It's the ministry of reconciliation. All these th things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ, and He gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us this word of reconciliation, this message of reconciliation. That's why, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. That's what you got to see yourself as. An ambassador of Jesus Christ making an appeal to them to be reconciled to Him because He demonstrated His love toward us and them. And then while we were yet sinners, He came and died for us. He didn't say, okay, if you get your act straight, then we can talk. Your dad ever have that chat with you? You straighten up, son, and we can talk. Until then, I had that chat with my son. My dad had that chat with me. I got to imagine most of you, if you had a dad, at some point got that. I had that chat with my daughter. You know what? We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. And we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We beg you 
on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. On what basis? He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God provided the absolute perfect means by which you can be reconciled to him. And that is what Christ did for us at the cross. That's, listen, that's the ministry of reconciliation. That's the point that you're seeking to share with somebody when you share the gospel with them. Now, in the past, we've gone through a lot of different ways that you can, depending on where a person is standing, how to go through and what passages to go to and those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, I mean, that's the point. I say, but I'm just not good at it. Lots of times I don't even know what to say. I don't know how to say it. I come across awkward and it just seems like I don't have the gift or I'm I'm just not, it, it really needs to be somebody else. I want you in closing to take your Bible and turn with me back a couple of chapters to 2 Corinthians 2. I think this ought to be the most liberating passage in the Bible for those of you that feel that anybody else could do a better job. I just want to deliver you from this sense of that it's somehow dependent upon you. 2 Corinthians 2.14 Paul is talking now about his joy in ministry. He says, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. Everywhere I go, And if you're familiar with the book of Acts and Paul's uh, missionary journeys, you know that everywhere he went, he was not well received. At one point, they hunted him down and stoned him and left him for dead. Now, whether he actually died and God brought him back to life or he regained consciousness, in either case, he got pelted with rocks until he was gone, right? Because he was preaching the gospel. And you know what he did? He got right back up, went right into that same city and went right back to preaching the good news. Everywhere he went was not a good time. Everywhere he went, he was not well received. How then, Paul, can you say, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph? And the triumph is a reference to the Roman victory parades that the generals had for them in Rome, all the honors and accolades and uh, all the booty and loot and everything else. Every time we win the title, every time I'm successful, when I declare the knowledge of Jesus Christ everywhere I go, and it manifests through us a sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him. That term, the sweet aroma, if you underline key phrases in your Bible, that's derived directly from the Old Testament sacrificial system. The sweet aroma refers to the, the way God describes His reaction to the animal sacrifices when they're put up on the altar by somebody that's offering them in humility and worship, repentance, and faith. When you really bring your offering with the intention just to say, thank you, God, praise be to you, God, uh, forgive me, God, when you come with that attitude, I mean, how many of you like the smell of a grill? Oh, right? Uh, I'm getting older, so I, I don't ride my bike as much, but I walk around the neighborhood. And one, uh, one thing is a couple of days a week when I have to go down below and then I come back up and then I walk around the neighborhood, sometimes there are some neighborhoods that it's a little bit more of a chore to walk by because they're out grilling all the time. And, oh, you could smell it from a half a block away. And then the closer you get, I mean, it's like, 
uh, maybe I should go over to Gina's house. But uh, you just, you know what I'm saying? It's just, oh, that rich aroma. That's the kind of terminology that God uses to describe those Old Testament sacrificial offerings when they bring their animal with a pure and humble heart just to express thanks to God and it goes up on the altar there and it starts to burn as a burnt offering unto God. When God accepts the altar or the offering, he describes it as a sweet aroma in his nostrils. Paul uses that language and that very illustration to talk about his preaching of the gospel to people who are lost. You see this? He says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph. It's always a success in Christ and it manifests through us the sweet aroma in the nostrils of God, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. When you share the gospel with somebody who's lost, you have been successful in doing what God has called you to do. And it is an act of worship to Christ with which he is very well pleased. It is a sweet aroma in God's nostrils when you do it, regardless of how it plays out. Well, how do you know it's regardless of how it plays out? He says in verse 15, we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we're an aroma from death to death. To the other, we're an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Because we are not like many peddling the word of God, but from sincerity as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Listen, I'm not sharing the gospel with those who are lost just for their sake. I'm not sharing the gospel with those who are lost because I want to accumulate a number of, you know, kill flags on my cockpit of here's the number of people I've won to Christ. Okay, this isn't the pursuit of statistics. I'm not trying to get into the Evangelist Hall of Fame here. I'm successful whether they repent or not because Christ has just been named in their sight. Okay, and God is pleased with me of having done this act of worship to him regardless of how they respond. You understand when you point somebody to Christ, even if, even if your only knowledge of how to do it is to share your testimony, just say, just say you know something, uh, Joe or whoever, well, I've been working with you for the last year, five years, ten years, whatever. I just want to start and say, please forgive me that I've never broached this subject before. I don't know, some of you have used this very method. So have I. I... I should have broached this subject long ago. Please forgive me for not doing this. But can I just ask you a question? If you were to die tonight, do you know for sure you go to heaven? If you were to die tonight, do you know for sure you go to heaven? Because I, I know I would. And I'd like to share with you how I know I would. i just share with you in the next five minutes, ten minutes, whatever how God opened my eyes to the truth. And then at a minimum, you go through your testimony and then at a minimum say, and if you want to hear more about it, why don't you come to church with me next week? I'll even throw this out here, okay? If, if you invite them to church and you want to take them out to lunch after church and you can't afford to pay for them, then turn it in as a reimbursement we'll take care of it. Turn it as a reimbursement and we'll take care of it. Bring them to church, take them out to lunch afterwards, and then talk to them about the message they heard. Next week, we'll talk about praying. 
evangelistically. But the, the week after that, uh, we're doing deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It's the perfect weekend to bring somebody, especially the, somebody that thinks they're a Christian but never truly committed their lives to Christ. You know, there are a lot of lost people around us. If it weren't for the grace of God, would you not still be one of them? Based upon everything that God has done for us, isn't that enough of a motivation to want to point other people to Him? And then beyond that, has He not commanded us to do just that? And is it not pleasing to Him if we just do it regardless of how the person responds? I think that's a good reminder about being motivated to do evangelism, all of us. I hope so. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for this day. Lord, thank you so much for laying your...